Hello and welcome to No Confidence. I'm your host, David Merlin. Today's special treat, Mr. Kurt Riggin, my mentor, tribal counsel for several federally recognized Native American tribes, and a true warrior, an expert on the limitations of municipal authority under state law, tribal sovereignty, state and federal constitutional matters, criminal procedure, my mentor. I met Kurt in 1996 when I was gravitating away from federal tax law, having proven it futile. The courts don't work. We don't have courts. And when you say courts, it means judges. The judges are the courts. We don't have a judge in America. And in our our seminar today, if you want to call it a seminar, it's a discussion of what Kurt Riggin has found in Colorado after leaving Washington about nine years ago to live in Colorado. Went from bad to worse. The uh, authorities here in Washington were scheming to kill him, and so the U.S. Marshals told him to leave the state and go wherever he want, but stay out of the state. And he chose Colorado, and since then, as you'll hear, he's found that uh, Colorado is easily worse than Washington State. I'm going to post this show on my YouTube channel also, which you have linked from the interior pages of wevgov.com. wevgov.com has a link for YouTube and a link for YouTube 2. You'll find it on the YouTube 2 link unless they tell me to take it down. So uh, I want you to sit back and enjoy this discussion. Parental discretion. Uh, There will be profanity. So if you don't want your hear, your kids to hear an occasional F-bomb, it's time to clear the room. But you're going to hear a, a lengthy description of what it's like to live in Colorado as a legal advocate, somebody who knows the law better than the stupid, grubby cops that are walking around that are armed to the teeth. And in Colorado, they got it out for you, man. If you think you know anything about the law, uh, they will simply victimize you in every way possible until you leave the state. Those are the rules in Colorado. So once again, this is a three and a half hour conversation with Mr. Kurt Riggin. I hope you enjoy it and thanks for tuning in to No Confidence. It's January 24th, 2015. How are things in Colorado? Oh, ever interesting, that's for sure. Never a dull moment. That's too bad. I have, uh... What's that? You would think they'd lighten up when it gets cold. So, how long have you lived in Colorado now? Uh, About nine years now. Almost ten. That's pretty much long enough to get the lay of the land, isn't it? Yeah, they're, uh... They're a pretty wild, fast, and loose state, as far as law goes. They? You talking about bikers? <laughs> state, state of Colorado, uh, and their boys. Excuse me. Yeah, they get away with a whole lot of stuff that that doesn't fly in Washington. See, they haven't had somebody like you and I giving the court systems a hard time quite as much as Washington State 
I'm sure they had their share of so-called patriots, but um, they've steamrolled them here brutally. And uh, interestingly enough, a friend of mine found a case involved uh, from 2007, I think, involving the same county, Jefferson County, involving the same exact charge. The guy was arrested for violating a protection order. Yeah, we're not. Uh, Kurt, well, I think what we ought to do first is lay out your case, and. Uh, We'll lay that on top of it. That's kind of the icing. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that, that's what's happened, uh, what is occurring recently. Uh, why don't we go back a ways and uh, recount some of the stuff you've seen happen there in uh, Colorado before we get to exactly what they're doing to you. There was a something about a blind man in a crosswalk. Oh, yeah. Joseph Kovach. That's a very, <laughs> that's a good one there. My friend Joseph Kovach, he's he's blind. He has glaucoma like myself. Only his glaucoma was very advanced. And uh, his mother had both of his eyes removed because of the pain he was in. And so Joe has no eyes. He has glass eyes. And Joe is going... Uh, attempting to cross the corner of Bellevue and Federal, which is a major intersection in Denver. Or actually, uh, a town called Inglewood, which is you know suburb of Denver. And uh, there's no crosswalk signal. So, you know, he can't hear whether the crosswalk is for him or not. So he hears the cars going. So he figures, you know, traffic's flowing that way, now I can walk. He starts walking across the intersection, and a lady hits him in a crosswalk, knocks him like 25 feet, breaks his arm, uh, breaks his wrist, messes him up pretty good. Inglewood police get called, and they, uh, they come and arrest Mr. Kovac. He, they show up at the scene, he's, he's sitting on the curb, and uh, his head, his wrist is broken. And this lady gets up, starts talking to him, and said, hey, he jumped out in front of me. And I had the right of way because I had a green arrow. And uh, he said, you know, yeah, he, was, he was pretty pissed at that point. He said, you stupid bitch. He goes, I have the right of way. Well, the cops didn't like that, so they handcuffed him. You know, they put handcuffs on his broken wrist, and they took him to jail for destruction of private property. What property and, uh, was that? Uh, he broke her windshield and dented her car when she hit him. You know. That hell, bad, that hellion. Bad, <laughs> bad black, blind man. You know, what was he thinking? And uh, here's the funny part. She said, well, I saw him in the crosswalk. He didn't stop for me. I had a green light, so I hit him. She said that to the police. So they arrested him, charged him with destruction of private property, and I think jaywalking. I'm not sure. I, mean, I know they charged him with destruction of private property. And uh, so he didn't know what to do. I mean, he's blind. And he's not used to dealing with the court systems or even with the police. And um, so, they, uh, so I, I go to Inglewood court with him. I said, you know, I'll help you out, dude. So I go down there. 
That's and the officer. Criminal, that's a criminal charge, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, destruction of private property is definitely a criminal charge. So we get him down there, and I said, ah, we want a preliminary probable cause hearing and an and a evidentiary hearing. We want, we want a pretrial hearing. So the judge decides, oh, okay, you know, we're going we're gonna to have a pretrial hearing. And uh, it was uh, it was pretty interesting. I got uh, I got Joe up to testify, and uh, I also I, I cross-examined the police officer, which was probably the most interesting cross-examine. I said, uh, I understand you arrested Mr. Kovach for destruction of private property. He goes, Yeah, that's right. He jumped out in front of a lady, and he purposely caused damage to her car. I said. Did you see it? Were you there? Well, no, but I, I got a report from the lady. From one, from a witness, he said. I said, a witness? You mean the lady that ran him over? Oh, well, the lady he, the, the lady he, who, whose property he destroyed, he said. I said, where was Mr. Kovach when he destroyed her property? He goes in Inglewood, at the corner of Bellevue and Federal. Uh, I said, I need a little bit more accurate. Was he on the sidewalk? Was he in the middle of the crosswalk? Where was he exactly? Well, evidently from where he, he was laying, he goes, he was in the crosswalk. I said, so let me get this straight. Mr. Joe, Mr. Kovach was hit in the crosswalk by a car. Yeah. And I said, and he's blind. So, um... <laughs> Didn't, didn't you, you ever heard of the White the... Cane Law? Yeah, there you go. You ever heard of the White Cane Law? No, I, I never heard of that. I said, well, let's imagine you had heard of it. What do you think the White Cane Law is? You know, I don't know. I said, well, let me help you out there. The White Cane Law is written for people who are blind, just like Mr. Kovacs. And that law is, is, is put on the books so incidents like this don't happen. I said, uh, our legislators were smart enough to know that, gee, if a blind person gets run down in a crosswalk, that according to the law, he has the right of way. Now, why do you think that is? So, uh, how am I supposed to know? I said, well, because the people driving the cars... They have eyesight. They can see him. He can't see them. Oh, well, yeah. I said, so he can't avoid them. And I said, do you realize how many crosswalks the city of Inglewood has that are made for blind people? Out of 2,200? No. I said, two. And there isn't one at this intersection, is there? Well, no. So, so I get the, uh, so, so I cross the exam and Joey says, yeah, I was, you know, going across the crosswalk, and all of a sudden this lady runs me over, and then she starts yelling at me. You son of a bitch, you're out in the road, I, you know, I have the right of way. And he, you know, called her a bitch and said, I have the right of way, lady. I have a white cane. Well, so... I get the officer on the stand because he, he, he testified told me his story let's get the officer on the stand I said uh, 
Let me ask you a question, officer. Oh, oh, before that, before that, um, I got I had Joe up on the on the stand, and I said, uh, Joe, can I see one of your eyes? Oh, oh, because I asked um, I asked the officer uh, before. Like I crossed over the officer first, I, and I asked him beforehand. I said, uh, "So, um, what was your probable cause to arrest Mr. Kovacs?" He goes, "Well, he had bloodshot, watery eyes and a glassy stare, and so I knew he was on drugs. Eighteen years of police experience, I could tell he was on drugs." I said, "Just by looking at his eyes." He goes, "That's correct. He had bloodshot, watery eyes and a glassy stare." And I said, well, um, that's very interesting. I said, so your training teaches you that you can tell by looking at somebody's eyes whether they're on drugs. Because that's right. I said, that's interesting. Thank you. And I had him step down. I get Joseph up. And I said, Joe, uh, can I see one of your eyes? He said, yeah, okay, sure. He pops out one of his glass eyes. And, oh, yeah, this one, the officer was still on the stand. So the officer's still on the stand. I'm asking the stock questions. I go out over to Joe, and I said, Joe, can I see one of your eyes real quick? So he pops out his glass eye. I stick it right underneath the officer's nose, close enough to where he could touch it with his tongue. And he's trying to crawl out of the witness stand because he did not want to be anywhere near that glass eye. It creeped him out. And I said, now, officer... Let me ask you a question. Does this blood, this, does this eye look bloodshot to you? <laughs> he goes, well, I don't know. Uh, maybe he had a different set of eyes. I said, well, that's a good point. I said, Joe, let me ask you a question. Do you have a spare set of bloodshot eyes you can put in when you want to catch a buzz? He goes, No. No, Social Security only bought me one set of eyes. I wouldn't know if they're bloodshot or not, because I don't have any. I said, well, officer, are these bloodshot? He goes, well, it appears they're not. I said, he testifies these are the only set of eyes he has. So, I mean, and you do understand that maybe the fact that they're glass could have tamed for the glassy stare. Yeah, he, he was not digging that one. And the judge said, oh, we're going to have a, we're, we're, I'm calling this a, a, a recess in my chambers. Because he did not want, <laughs> the judge did not want this getting on the public record. And they decided, well, we're going to dismiss Mr. Kovach's case. Oh, okay, let's see, you got a blind man hit at a crosswalk. And now you're going to dismiss the case instead of charging him with destruction of private property? Well, you guys are geniuses. So I really appreciate you doing your, such a good job, Your Honor. So, wow. yeah, they had, to, they had to throw out Mr. Kovitz's case, you know, because he was a blind man run down in a crosswalk by a crazy lady who actually said on a report, well, I saw the white cane, but I had a green arrow. And he didn't stop for me, so I hit him. Well, what does that tell you? She hit him on purpose, because he didn't stop for her. You know, my brother had a 
real similar situation. He was on a motorcycle going through an intersection on, in the left lane. There was a guy in the left-hand turn lane stopped to turn left. Another guy in the right-hand lane stopped to take a right-hand turn. And he goes through the intersection on his motorcycle, and a lady runs a red light, takes a left turn, and uh, chases him across two lanes and, and hits him. And it took him like took their doctors like four hours to to pull to dig the paint chips from her license plate out of the bone in his leg, not to mention breaking his hip and messing him up real bad. And at a deposition for his civil court suit, the lady gets up and testifies. Well, he did, the other two people in the in in the other lane stopped for me. He didn't stop for me, so as far as I'm concerned, he got what he deserved. Her, her attorney just threw his pencil in the air. <laughs> he just, oh, shit, what do I do? <laughs> like, oh, well, this is over. <laughs> he knew his case was pretty much over at that point. Right. But, uh, <laughs> but, yeah, she was all indignant. Yeah, he didn't stop for me. He was, you know, I had a green arrow, so therefore I I, I had to hit him. So the kind uh, yeah. The cop that cited the blind man, um, in your experience there in Colorado, would you say he's uh, run-of-the-mill or he's by far the worst cop you encountered all this time? Oh, I'd say he's your average cop. He's your average, he, he's, you know, pretty much how they all are. I mean, there's a few good ones that are out here, but I'll tell you what, not many. I've only met a couple of good ones. They are, they're so used to getting away with shit, up to and including murder in this state, that they have no fear. They're immune. Now, for, for people that have never heard of you, um, why don't you outline some of your background? Uh, where were you and what were you doing in 1992? What was I doing in '92? <laughs> uh, more importantly, what what did you start doing in 1993 that you hadn't been doing in 1992? Oh, didn't you back. get didn't you get in a wreck? Oh yeah, 1993. In July of '93, I was in a uh, really severe motor vehicle accident where I was on what, vacation. What were you doing before? What were you doing before that? Oh, before that, um, actually, way before that, back in 84, I was charged with, uh, I get a bunch, a bunch of different charges, and uh, I started looking into the court rules and the laws, and I started going, wait a minute, there's something hinky here, this, the way these guys are doing things is, is, doesn't work. So I filed some briefs about how the uh, how their court system is in violation of their own constitution and their own laws, and um, I filed them with the head court administrator, with the state supreme court, the attorney general, the governor's office. I think one for Congress and one for the Senate as well, and. Um, I pointed out uh, the quandary of problems they had 
with the fact that they didn't have one elected judge in the state of Washington. And all at that point, all their judges were just like here in Colorado. They were all appointed. And um, I'm not sure if any of them had any oaths of offices or bonds at that time either. And I brought that to their attention. I also brought to the attention that they uh, were in violation of federal law. Since federal law required all public servants to have oaths of offices and bonds on it before the day they went into office. State and federal law. Well, it wasn't long after that, they they had what was called the Court Reform Act of 1984. And before the Court Reform Act, if you got charged with speeding, you could go to jail for it. They would jail you for that. If you got charged with no insurance, they would throw you in jail and they would impound your car. And uh, I pointed out that, uh, you know, you guys are violating your own state laws. You're not in compliance with your own constitution and your own laws. This is before I went to the National Archives and dug up the original constitution for the state of Washington, which the 1878 Walla Walla Constitution is the only one that exists in the National Archives for the state of Washington, and it's found in miscellaneous document number 55, oddly enough. But... um, but in, in, in what in Colorado, <laughs> they're doing the same exact thing that Washington did before 1984. They well, hang on before you jump forward to present day again. Uh, what were you doing for a living in the 1980s? I was a I was teaching lost wax casting, bright cut diamond setting, and um, teaching jewelry making. And I also taught martial arts classes. I had uh, I had a Kempo studio where I taught Kempo and Pushin uh, Yang Gong Fu in uh, down on, on Second and James in downtown Seattle. So I was and then uh, making jewelry and teach martial arts. Long before your accident in 1993, it sounds like nine years before. Uh, what was the outcome of the uh, the when, when you brought it to their attention that the judges and the courts were astray in certain ways here in Washington, uh, what did the system well, do to I, accommodate you? And I pointed out that uh, you guys have you know criminalized every you know every traffic offense and and where there's no mens rea involved, and to be charged with the crime you have to have mens rea, which is the criminal intent to commit the culpable act. You know, there's there's two basic elements to every criminal charge. One is mens rea, the other one is actus reus, which is Latin. And mens rea means the criminal intent to commit the culpable act, and then actus reus is the criminal act itself. So you can commit a criminal act, but if you have no intention to commit that criminal act, they can't convict you because... Every criminal act has to involve the basic element of actus reus, or criminal intent. And I pointed out, I don't have any criminal intent to, to speed or to not have insurance. 
and you're, you're criminalizing the poor, and you're violating state and federal law. So they had what was called the Court Reform Act of 1984. And what that did was that decriminalized all traffic offenses. So you couldn't go to jail for speeding. You couldn't go to jail for, unless you were, you know, negligent driving, doing, you know, like 120 or something like that. And, and uh, you couldn't go to jail for all these other offenses they were jailing people for. They decriminalized them and made them infractions instead. And they also required, they fired every judge in the state and held elections. And the judges had to be elected after that not appointed. They also had to have oath office and they had to be they had to have surety bonds on file on or before the day they went to office as required by law. So in 84 Washington fixed the way they Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, in 84 Washington fixed the way they did business and uh, evidently no other state seemed to pay attention to that because Colorado has been doing it the same way. They, they pull you over for no insurance, they impound your car, and they take you to jail. And if you get charged with a speeding ticket here in uh, Colorado, you're going to love this. Their Supreme Court put together a rule that says you don't have a right to discovery in a traffic case. Let me repeat that. In Colorado, according to the Colorado State Supreme Court rules, you don't have the right to discovery in a traffic case. Now, you could go to jail, but you don't have a right to discovery. Now, I'm pretty so, sure that's a constitutional and, right. So in 1993, uh, you got in an accident, and uh, wasn't it the hoops you had to jump through to address that accident, really, that roped you into legal advocacy? Yeah, that was a big part of it. That Well, I kind of started... Start, I, you know, back in 84 is when I started kind of studying the law thanks to a gal that, named Betty Howard in Richland, Washington. I had talked to her before. She had all these law books. She was really a genius. She was an incredible lady. Too bad she died from E. coli poisoning thanks to Dole Spinach. But uh, she, uh, I call her up from the courthouse because they're saying, oh, you're going to have to end our plea, you know, blah, blah, blah. I call her up and said, hey, I... You know, I'm not going to go along with the shit they're trying to pull on me. So, you know, what do I do? And she goes, well, first thing, don't enter a plea. No matter what you do. Tell them you want to confer with counsel before you enter a plea. <laughs> so don't enter a plea. So I refused to enter a plea. So then they set my court date. And she said, now, here, I'm going to give you a copy. She gave me a copy of the court rules that said, you know, you should probably start by reading these. So that's where I started. I read the court rules. I got, you know, and I'm kind of cursed with the, if I read something, I usually remember it. And um, so I read the court rules, and I go to court after I refused to enter a plea. And uh, I think I used IRLJ 2.1 2.2D at that time. IRLJ. IRLJ is infraction rules for limited jurisdiction. Go ahead. Yeah, RLG, fractional courts, fractional rules for courts of limited jurisdiction. 2.2D is a rule that says if they don't file that citation within 48 hours, and I had to go down, or I, 
I uh, went down and got a copy of the docket, which proved when the case was filed. And we found out the case wasn't filed until five days after the citation was issued. So I said, hey, under IRLJ 2.2D, I demand this case be dismissed because it wasn't filed within 48 hours as required by the court rule. Now I guess they've extended that for fractions up to five days. Because <laughs> they got tired of getting their asses handed to it because the cops weren't filing the citations in a timely fashion. So now they got five days to file that according to the IRLJ. Well, you have really, a bad attitude. What's that? I said you have well, a bad attitude. Right. Oh, yeah. Well, I made him, made him dismiss that case and... Uh, and then, you know, after the Court Reform Act, I, they seemed to be real pissed at me. Uh, in 86, I was in two motor vehicle accidents. I was uh, I was riding my motorcycle, my 76 Super Glide, I think I was, um, down this street, and this guy in a four-wheel drive truck ran a stop sign. And I laid down the bike to avoid getting run over, and shattered my left elbow. So I got my elbow in a big old cast. And uh, I think it was like, that was July 21st of 86. And then on August, no, July 13th of 86. And then August 21st, I think is what it was. I was uh, going to the chiropractor. I found this chiropractor was really good. And uh, I had a big old cast on my arm. And I'm driving back from the chiropractor, and I go through this intersection in Kennewick, Washington, uh, and uh, Columbia Center Boulevard, I think, in, in Clearwater was the intersection, a major intersection there. I'm going through the green light, and this kid takes a left turn and hits me head on, and I guess he was doing probably close to 50. I was doing about 35. And uh, I was in a little 78 Dodge Omni and he was in a three-quarter ton pickup. And I was pinned in that car for about four hours with a cast on. So the car crunched up like it was supposed to, but uh, the, the steering wheel shaft had split my sternum and uh, pinned me into the car. So they had to take the jaws of life, cut the steering wheel shaft, and cut away part of the car to get me out of it. And so I was there for you know, what seemed like four hours, but it was probably about maybe an hour. But, uh, so I was pretty messed up from that accident. It took me a long time to recover from that 86 accident because it busted, you know, busted a lot of my ribs, split my sternum, and uh, rebroke my arm in the cast. And I didn't know, they didn't figure that out for almost two weeks. I kept some of my arms hurt like hell. Oh yeah, well, you know, that's pretty common. And finally, I said, listen, man, you know, you know I was in an accident a couple of weeks ago. My arm is hurting worse than when before the accident. Well, we'll take a look at it, you know. And he x-rays my arm in the cast and realizes I broke it in three places that weren't broken before. So here I had three broken bones in my arm. And, uh, and the, the, in the forearm and, and in the upper arm. And... You know, they didn't even, they weren't kept to it at all, so they, they had to re, and I, evidently it started to 
one of the brakes started to heal wrong, so they had to go in with a rubber mallet and re-brake it and reset it and put another cast on it. Well, that was one of my more pleasant uh, experiences. Hold now, still. Uh, just I'm going to break your arm for you. <laughs> yeah, wasn't this part of that training program to become a doctor for the jail system? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I believe you're right. So, yeah, I got these accidents in 86. I was pretty messed up. Nah, it took me a long time. And then in 93, I got hit head-on. Um, I was on vacation in Portland, Oregon. Uh, again, on my motorcycle. I went down all the way down Highway 101 from the very tip of the Washington coast all the way down to California, through Oregon, down to California. And I, at that time, I had... A, a uh, martial arts studio in Second and James in Seattle, and that where I was teaching martial arts during the week. And on the weekends, starting uh, Friday at one o'clock, I would open up and and run an after-hours club that I that I ran from one o'clock till six o'clock in the morning. And I had a guest list of 450 private guests, and uh, I served booze till six in the morning. And you could smoke dope in my place, you know, whatever you wanted to do. It was, it was all good. <laughs> and so I, I did a pretty brisk business. I pulled in a little over 2000 a week, uh, which covered my expenses because the martial arts studio wasn't, wasn't paying for itself. It, it was a very expensive. It's like 2000 a month for that studio. And that was, uh, you know, that was in the 90s, 93, early 90s. So I decided I'm going to go down 101, go on vacation. I got somebody that's running my after-hours club for me. Not the brightest guy in the book, but, you know, he was a good guy. So I get down to call it to the California border, and we're driving down 101 into California. Me and a friend of mine that owned the, uh, a nightclub called the Phoenix Underground, a guy named Rick, Rick Wyatt. And... I get this, uh, I, I call in to check how the how things are going, and my friend says, oh, man, uh, they raided us. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, the cops came in, and I didn't hit the switch. I had a, I had a little system going where you walk, you go in, you went through the front door, you had a room with another door, and a guy sitting there with a little podium, and he checked your ID check to see if you're on one of the 450 people on the guest list. But if you weren't, you didn't get in the door, period. And so the cops showed up. We had a system where if the cops showed up, we had a switch. We had two switches. One was a green light, one was a red light. He flips the rest of the switch for the red light, and all the money in the club disappears. We had tip jars, stuff like that. And so everybody grabbed all the tip jars, make sure there was no money anywhere. So what I had was a private club where I served booze until 6 o'clock in the morning to private guests that were on a guest list. Totally legal. As long as you don't charge for it. So what I did is I said, okay, you know, to get in, it's $10. You get a ticket. Each ticket gets you three drinks for $10. So, you know, a drink only costs you $3.33. And, you know, and it's... 
you know, it's between one and six, so you know, it was the only game in town, the only after-hours club in town at the time. So it was very popular. I had, I had the guys from Nirvana, Soundgarden, you know, uh, all your strippers, all your waitresses, bartenders. I mean, where do you go when you work till three o'clock in the morning, and you get off work at three? Where do you go to unwind? Not many places open at three o'clock in the morning, except maybe Denny's. So, uh, yeah, I had the hot spot in town. It was, you know, it was a the only after-hours club in downtown Seattle at that time. And that was during the grunge era. So, yeah, I got to meet a lot of the bad people, got to hang out with a lot of the your, your grunge crowd and everything. It, it was very interesting times back then. Hey, uh, did you ever have a case where a stripper had been cited for wearing translucent clothing and uh, oh, dancing yeah. people? Yeah, my girlfriend, actually. Gal, at the time, a gal by the name of Helene Trehu. She was, um, this is what was really interesting. She was very intelligent. She had, um, she had a degree from UVA. And she was a costume designer. And she did uh, all the costuming designing for a couple different movies. One of them was... Uh, Toy Soldiers, and uh, I think she did the Hand that Rocks the Cradle, and a couple of. Them. But if you look, if you watch the movie Toy Soldiers, you'll see her name, Colleen F. Overton. That's her. She she was the costume girl, and um, so she was really intelligent. She's you know sharp, graduated with honors from UVA, and she, they come in and they. They had it set up to where a couple days or a couple weeks before the election, they would pay, actually for months before the election, they would pay these officers, they'd give them like $300 a day. And they had specific officers that would go to the strip clubs and they would have lap dances with that $300. And then they would write a report, you know, that, so that Tiffany, you know, did a lap dance and she actually sat on his lap and touched him and blah, blah, blah. So a couple weeks before the election, they come in and they raid the club and they arrest, oh, I think probably about 20 or 30 dancers. And they all, they charge each one of them with three counts of violating the standard of conduct code. And that says, oh, they dressed in less than opaque attire. Um, you know, that they did this, 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 and this. Well, so they charged her. They said, you're going to get 90 days per charge. That's three days, three charges at 90 days per charge. You're looking at uh, nine months in jail. And I started looking over the case. And I'm looking over the charges of, you know, violation of the standard of conduct code. And I realized the license they issued, you know, you get an entertainer's license from the city of Seattle. And that license says this is a license to dress in less than opaque attire. Do this, 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 and this. Well, the license was verbatim, word for word, what they were charging her with criminally for doing. So, you know, to simplify that, she had a license that said she could do everything that they were charging her criminally for doing. 
And so they charged her with violating the standard of conduct code. And then I pointed out, here's the thing. Her license gives her the authority to dress in a less than opaque attire, to do this, 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 and this, everything that you guys are charging her for criminally. So how can you license her? How can you charge her criminally for something you issued her license to do a couple of years ago? And not only her, but every other stripper in the club is being charged with these violations of standard of conduct code, and they're all licensed to do these things. That's like saying, here's your driver's license, but if we catch you driving, we're going to give you nine months in jail. Hmm. How does that yeah, and exactly. That's only if you drive in less than opaque clothing. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, you know, so that was that was really one of the, you know, that, that was, it was a great one because I said, how do you guys, you know, how do you guys charge somebody criminally for something you're licensing them to do? You know, it's word for word. What you're saying they're doing illegally is word for word what you have on their license that you are licensing them to do. So what is a license? I said, isn't a license something that that the state grants you the privilege to, to, to do something that would normally be illegal? So if you give me a driver's license, and I'm driving around without one before... I guess driving around without one before that would be illegal, right? Well, according to them, yeah. So if you give me a license to do something and then you catch me doing it, I'm pretty sure you can't arrest me. You sure as hell can't charge me criminally because you licensed me to do it. So, yeah, they didn't like that one very well. And what was really funny is the, the judge goes, well... Well, where's your attorney? She goes, well, I don't have an attorney. He goes, well, listen, little miss. What type of education do you have that makes you think you can represent yourself in a court of law where you could go to jail? He goes, do you even have a high school diploma? And she goes, oh, well, oh yeah, I have a high school diploma, but I have better than that. She goes, I have a degree from UVA. I graduated with honors from UVA. She goes, the school built by Thomas Jefferson, designed and built by Thomas Jefferson, with Thomas That's Jefferson's personal library, law library, in the as part of their library. And, uh, she goes, where did you go to school? <laughs> and the prosecutor got up and left. He walked out of the room. And this is during the hearing. Because he didn't want to tell her that he went to school in Cheney, which is eastern Washington. Not much of a college, I understand. Now, UVA, UVA is the University of Virginia. Yeah. It's an Ivy League college built by Thomas Jefferson. Designed and built by Thomas Jefferson. So, you know, yeah. So he didn't want to know that. He was like, where did you go to school? It's none of your business. Well, you're asking me what my qualifications are. 
What's that? Podunk America. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're asking me what my qualifications are to defend myself. Well, I need to know what your qualifications are to be a judge. Well, I went to, I went to Cheney. Cheney. Oh, where's that? Because well, that's in Eastern Washington. Because I never heard of it. <laughs> so yeah, that was a pretty good. That was one of the better better times in court when he goes, "Just what? Do you even have a high school diploma?" Yeah, I graduated with honors from UVA. Where did you go to school? <laughs> Suddenly, <laughs> he realized he was in trouble at that point. But. Uh, it should happen to every judge. Yeah, exactly. But, so, uh, uh, yeah, she, she beat that yeah. case, and then we helped a few other dancers out that were getting charged and actually wrote up. Here's what was really funny part about that. If you were a, a stripper that worked for Rick's, a, stri a strip club over on uh, Lake City Way, and you got charged with a violation of the standard of conduct code, you had Gil Levy as your attorney. And they took money out of your check to pay Gil Levy. Oh, you're automatically, that's, his, that's your attorney. Well, Gil Levy had a problem with showing up. He never showed up for the stripper's hearings. And here they're, they're taking money out of their check to pay him. And, yeah, he, you know, he, a lot of it, most of the time he never bothered even showing up for their hearings. So here they're paying this attorney out of their paycheck, and he never shows up. So uh, I said, yeah, sorry, Gil Levy is not her attorney, and uh, she, you are not taking any money out of her check because she never consented to it. You better show me something in, that she signed in writing that allows you to do that. Well, you know, they didn't have anything. So they had to take, give her her money back that they were taking out of her check for her so-called attorney. And, um, I mean, what a racket. That bastard was, you know, he was getting a new client every time they got a citation in the club. <laughs> and he got paid, didn't have to do anything for it. And he usually get him to plead guilty or, you know. So, uh, yeah, it, it was quite the racket they had going on there. And I'm from all I know, they probably started it back up again after I beat their ass. You know, once people forget, it, it's kind of like the 520 bridge. Okay, you guys are aware, you know, you aware of the 520 bridge there between Bellevue and Seattle? Goes across Lake Washington. Yep, the floating bridge. All right, yeah, no, it's not the floating bridge, but 520 bridge is, uh, it's, a, it's, you know, one of the main bridges going across. Well, um, when they built that 520 bridge, they had a governor by the name of Rosalini. Well, people started noticing that, hey, man, this, this toll booth has been on this bridge for years. And people started complaining. You know, how long are you going to have a toll booth on the bridge? Well, when they demanded, they finally, a group of people demanded an audit. And when they audited it, they found that they had collected five times the cost of that bridge at the toll booth. Let me repeat myself. The state of Washington had collected five times the cost of the bridge at the toll booth. So they paid that for that bridge five times over. It hurt. And Rosalini... Huh? It hurt. Yeah. And Rosalini 
to try to cover his ass, wrote a, a he wrote a, a bill, and it went right through. And that bill said they could never put another toll booth on the 520 bridge ever again since they had not only paid for that bridge, but they had paid for all future maintenance of that bridge because they paid for it five times over. When you when you pay for five bridges and you only get one, yeah, that's pretty much paying for all future maintenance of that bridge, wouldn't you say? So, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, they decided they were going to put a, a toll booth on that bridge. And I was sitting over in the University of Washington Law Library, and I was I listening to these guys talking about it. And I, and evidently one of them was a University of Washington Law professor. I don't remember his name. You know. And I said, do you realize that there's this law that I found that, uh, you know, signed by Rosalini saying that they could never put another toll booth on the bridge? He goes, oh, wow, I didn't know about that. I said, well, maybe we should kind of bring it to their attention. So this this law professor from the University of Washington brought this information forward that I provided him, saying that you know Governor Rosalini, since they'd collected five times the cost of the bridge, passed a law saying that they could never put another toll booth on that bridge, ever. Well, so we beat their ass and stopped them from putting a toll booth on that bridge 20 years ago. Well. They don't have a booth on that bridge, but now they got an electronic toll. So if you go across the 520 bridge, you automatically get billed a toll, which I sent a friend of mine down to Olympia to look for that law signed by Rosalini. And he tried finding it, and they made it unavailable to him. They said, oh, well, that that law's been buried buried he said well I need a shovel then because I need to see I need to copy that law and they said oh well you know that law's no good anymore he goes great show me where it was repealed well they never repealed it the Rosalini bill was never repealed but yet they have a toll on that bridge to this day. Now here's the thing. You can actually legally put a toll booth on a bridge once it's built with public funds. And you can collect tolls on that bridge until that bridge is paid for in full. But, it, but once that bridge is paid for in full, you can no longer accept tolls on that bridge. Well, they didn't get that, evidently, back in Rosalini's day because they collected five times the cost of the bridge. So, if people, you know, had a clue there in Washington, they would dig up the Rosalini bill and say, excuse me, but you've committed fraud on every person driving across this bridge. You've committed a crime by extorting money from them. And they need to charge their, the, the assholes that caused this. They need to go after the public officials that put that toll booth on that bridge. Or, excuse me, not a booth. Toll. See, by taking out the booth, well, there's no booth. Well, the, the, I believe booth isn't the key word to that law. Just because there isn't a toll booth doesn't mean what they're doing is illegal. The fact that there's a toll is the key word to that bill. Toll. Toll. 
not booth. Just because they can't put a toll booth doesn't mean they can put a toll on it. So, so here they got their 520 bridge, and now they've been collecting tolls on it for years, and everything they've done is illegal. Every toll they collected on that 520 bridge is illegal as hell. Now, if they want to build a new one next to it, they can put a toll booth on that son of a bitch until it's paid. But they can't put a toll on a paid-for bridge. You can't do it. Because the toll is to pay for the bridge. So, you know, because of ignorance of the law, all these states, not just Washington, Colorado, California, Oregon, I mean, all these states, they get away with so much criminal shit because nobody knows. Nobody knows it's illegal. You know, here they had years ago, you know, several years ago, they had a guy by the name of Anthony Anthony Lobato Jr. He was a 78-year-old, very inf, infirm gentleman who was staying in a in a second-story apartment in a hospital bed, and evidently he had a nephew that beat up his wife and got and managed to get away. Two weeks prior. So two weeks later, the Denver police show up. They get a ladder. And one of them goes through the, the top floor window of this apartment. They go, they go in through the window with this ladder, without a warrant, by the way, looking for this guy who had a domestic violence charge against him. And they see Mr. Anthony Lobato Jr. in a hospital bed, armed with a Coke can. And they shot him eight times in the chest, and Mr. Lobato was 110 pounds, five feet, four inches tall. And they he, was armed, he was he was armed, armed with, with a, what? With a Coke can. A Coke yeah. can, okay. He had a can of Coke in his hand, and the cop shot him eight times in the chest for being armed with a Coke can. Well, they, they couldn't find the gun. They realized, oh, it was a can of Coke. And you know how easy it is to mistake a can of Coke for a gun. I mean, they almost are identical. You can barely tell them apart, right? Now, hang on. Uh, now, that officer did get charged. Just a second. There in Colorado, uh, just a few weeks ago, did you hear about that case where uh, a guy pointed a banana at the cop and was charged for felony menacing? Yeah. Yeah, welcome to wonderful Colorado. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. <laughs> well, you know how hard it is to tell fruit from a gun. They almost look, I, I mean, you know, you look at a banana and you would swear it's a gun. It looks just like a, a gun, right? Well, evidently, the cops here have banana-shaped guns, so, you know, I can, I can explain the confusion. So, did you have something else you wanted to add about the guy in the apartment? Oh, yeah. They, uh, you know, the officer was never charged. Now, the officer went through a second-story apartment window without a warrant, with a ladder, and shot an unarmed old man in a hospital bed, and he was never charged. He did get, however, a six-month suspension with pay. Now, where I come from, we call that a paid vacation. So evidently they taught him, 
a valuable lesson that if you shoot an old unarmed old man armed with a coke can in a hospital bed in a second story apartment that you didn't have a warrant to enter through the window that that's okay and you know you needed you obviously need a vacation after doing that paid so that sent a big message you know if a cop shoots you accidentally he's going to get a vacation a paid vacation and, you know you get to have a funeral Hey, uh, in Colorado, if you're driving without insurance, you get a ticket. How long ago was that law repealed? Oh no, it's uh, in uh, that was repealed in 2003, July of 2003. They repealed the mandatory insurance law, and not only do you just get a ticket, but they impound your vehicle and they take you to jail. They arrest you for no insurance in this state for violating a repealed law. Yeah. Yeah, paradise. Yeah, oh yeah. Well, you know, most people don't bother looking, and if they do, they don't bother bringing it up to court because you know they probably aren't going to stand much of a chance. Um, but uh, in my case, you know, interestingly enough, eight years ago while I was in Montana, they issued a protection order against me because they can't call it a restraining order because it doesn't comply with the federal restraining order laws. So they renamed it, called it a protection order. And uh, a lady swore that I um, I threatened to sue her and that I looked at her like I was going to get her. And they issued a permanent protection order against me eight years ago, for you know, nine years ago now, for, you know, for threatening looking at her in a threatening matter and threatening to sue her. So so here I get this protection order issued and I and they they never served me with it. So I was never served with any kind of protection order. And when I when I sent somebody down to the courthouse to get records of this protection order and the proof of service and everything, they had a proof of service with um with uh, Dr. Glazer's name on it, the uh, person I live with, and uh, her name was crossed out, and my name was written above it. And that was the only proof of service they had on file for the last eight years for this case. Now, where I come from, when you take a legal document and you cross out somebody else's name that's typed in, and you write somebody's name above it, what did you do to that document? Invalidated you it. You just invalidated it. You voided that document because you can't cross up somebody else's name. I mean, if they, if that's how they did things in court, that's pretty fast and loose and I don't know, sloppy. Yeah, we'll just yeah. Here's the proof of service. We'll just cross this one out and write this name in. It's same. It's all good. Same same, right? So that's the only thing they've had on the file for the last eight years is a proof of service. Well, I kept demanding, I said, I'd demand a copy of the proof of service for this case. And they kept saying, oh, yeah, we don't have to give you that, we don't have to give you that. I subpoenaed it. Finally, they dug it up and they realized, holy shit, this ain't worth the paper it's printed on. So just a couple months ago, after, now here's what's funny, is I've been sending people almost every year to the court 
you know, that were going for something else, and I'd say, hey, while you're down there, go pull a copy of my uh, proof of service from my file. So I had proofs of service going back eight years, every year. And every one of them has a state, a date stamp on it, right? Time, date, stamp, and a file stamp that says file. So a couple months ago, I go to court to meet the prosecutor. He says, well, come on down and meet me at this courtroom, and, you know, we'll... I'll, we'll, we'll go over the file together. I'll let you look at your discovery. Because they told me, um, oh, by the way, they said, uh, you're going to trial on December 8th. And unless you pay $188, you're not getting your discovery. And you're not getting counsel unless you pay for it. And you're not getting the jury unless I pay for it. And even, even if I paid for it, she wasn't going to give me a jury. She goes, you're getting a bench trial. I said, I object. You can't, you can't try me without discovery, without counsel, and without a jury. I said, that's a direct violation of the federal laws. The Constitution of both state and federal. It's a violation of the you know, state constitution and the federal constitution. And I said, I'm pretty sure it's official misconduct on your part. Perjury of your oath. That's at the very best. And, and I said... Um, you know, you're in clear violation of federal law. She goes, well, good thing we're in the state of Colorado. We don't have to abide by federal law. Quote, unquote. I'm like, I'd love to hear you say that to a federal judge. So she tells me, you know, no counsel, no, no discovery, no jury. And you're going, you know, and she goes, and on the 8th of December, you will be tried and sentenced that day. I said, well, ma'am, aren't you getting a little ahead of yourself? What are you talking about? I said, I'm pretty sure you can't sentence me until I've been convicted of something. Well, you know what I mean. I said, yeah, unfortunately, I know exactly what you mean. I've already been convicted. I said, in your mind, I'm already convicted. So all you got to do is get around to sentencing me. Oh, yeah, and, and that that uh, there's that other part. You also got to pretend to try me, right? So I filed the complaint. I went to the head court administrator and I said, I demand a jury trial. The judge is telling me I'm not going to get one. I demand one. And I understand that's your job. So she said, well, yeah, if you demand a jury trial, you can fill out this form. So I wrote on the form, I demand a jury trial. She scheduled me a jury. So the next hearing I went to, the judge was pissed. Oh, you went over my head, huh? <laughs> I said, excuse me, ma'am? She goes, oh, you got yourself a jury trial. I said, oh, yeah, 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 I did. I said, uh, I had to go to the one person who can't deny me my jury trial. That's your head court administrator. I said, but, you know, I appreciate your efforts of uh, you know, attempting to keep me from getting a jury trial. Now, Kurt, this case is over a violation of that protection order. What did you do to deserve that? Well, on 2012, the day before Thanksgiving, we get a call early in the morning from Chase Manhattan Bank. And they said, are you guys making a Walmart, a purchase at Walmart? And I said, no, we don't buy anything from Walmart. We try to, you know, we try not to uh, use our dollar to... Uh, 
you know, make the world a worse place. So, you know, we believe in using the power of the dollar. We don't buy anything from Walmart unless we absolutely have to. And she goes, well, your credit card's making its third purchase at Walmart this morning. I said, well, it's stolen. And we'd like to report that now. So we report the stolen credit card. Then we find out not only did he this guy make three purchases at Walmart, but he went over and filled his gas tank at a Shell station on 38th of Kipling and then went and paid his cricket bill with another stolen credit card. So he used three stolen credit cards altogether. Three at Wal- uh, one at Walmart, one at the gas station, and one to pay his cricket bill. So we called the Wheat Ridge Police Department and said, hey, you know, somebody broke into the car, stole the purse, and stole credit cards and we have, you know, videotape of them using it at the Shell Station and at the Walmart. And the Wheat Ridge Police told us, we're too busy. Sorry, we can't come out and take a report from you. Hmm. So evidently they were too busy to take a report on a felony crime. And so, um, so I go, oh, shit. So I get dressed. I'm in bed, I get dressed, and I go out, and I start going down the block, because it's, you know, it's a garbage day for a lot of people, and everybody's got a garbage can outside. Well, what is the first thing a thief does when he steals a pocketbook or a purse? Do you know? Yeah, they get rid of it by throwing it away. Exactly. They take what they want, the cash, the credit cards, out of it, and they throw it in the nearest garbage can. So, you know, using common sense, I start going up the block looking through garbage cans to try to find my, uh, you know, the purse or the pocketbook that they stole. And, uh, hold on a second. Let me call you back a bit. Okay. Yeah. No, not you. Not you. Um, And so... I try to look for the pocketbooks or purse. I'm looking through the garbage cans. And this crazy lady that got a restraining order against me eight years ago for threatening to sue her, she comes running out her front door, yelling and screaming at me and taking pictures of me. You bastard, you're going to jail. Ah, you know. So I'm walking down the sidewalk. You know, I didn't look through any of her garbage cans. I asked, And I asked for permission. I asked, I asked permission of the people that had their garbage cans out there. Hey, you mind if I look through your garbage can? I'm looking for a purse. Yeah, no problem. They let me look through the garbage can. So, you know, I look through there. Well, she comes out, takes pictures of me, and, you know, and I flip her the bird. I, I, I scratch my nose with my middle finger and tell her to have a nice day under my breath as I walk. And she's four houses from me. She lives four houses away from me. By the time I walked those four houses from her house to mine, I had three cop cars in the front of my house. Now, they were too busy. City of City Wheat Ridge. <laughs> yeah. Three Wheat Ridge cops were in front of my house by the time I walked four houses down the block. Now, these are the same assholes that less than an hour earlier were too busy to take a report of stolen credit cards. And, and I figured, oh, well, great. They're down here. They're here to take a report about the stolen credit cards. I said, so you have, have you had any other people with their cars broken into? He says, what are you talking about? I said, you're here to take a report about the stolen 
about somebody breaking in our car and stealing credit cards, right? He goes, oh, no, no. I'm here because you harassed, you harassed somebody that you had a protection order against, against you. I said, what? He says, yeah, you went into that lady's house up the street, and you get, went into her yard, and you yelled at her, and you threatened her. I said, say what? I said, I have a witness. I didn't go in her yard. I got a witness that was standing right here the whole time. I walked up the street. I walked past her house. I never stepped foot off the sidewalk. Never once went in her yard. Never said a word to her. He said, did you flip her the bird? Did you flip her off? I said, I don't know. Maybe I did. I scratched my nose with my middle finger, but I never made any gesture towards her. I said, I always scratch my nose with my middle finger. See? And I... And I demonstrated to him. Here's me scratching my nose with my middle finger. He said, you better not do that to me. I said, uh, to you, am I touching you? <laughs> I said, am I harassing you? What, you got a protection order against me too? He says, if I think you committed a crime, I'm going to come back and arrest you. I said, yeah, well, good luck with that. So he went up the street to go talk to the old lady. And I go tell the old lady, hey, I go tell my old lady, hey, I'm, I'm going to run to the bank and see if I can straighten out this stolen credit card situation because I had a bad feeling this asshole was going to come back looking for me because they're idiots. You know, these guys are dumb as rocks. And he's, you know, one of the bigger rocks. So so I, uh, so I, go, to the, I go to the bank, you know, doing my business to try to take care of stolen credit cards that they didn't have any time to help us with. And, uh, of course, I get a call. And the old lady says, hey, uh, the police are here and they want to talk to you. I said, And they said, if you're not here in five minutes, they're going to issue a warrant for your arrest. I said, yeah, put me on the phone. So she gives him the phone. He says, if you're not here in three minutes, I'm going to issue a warrant for your arrest. I said, yeah, well, if you were a judge, I'd be all kinds of worried. But you're just a fucking idiot cop. I said, you're just a moron cop that doesn't know, wouldn't know the law if it hits you upside the head in book form. So I ain't too worried. I said, go ahead and do what you feel you can do. I said, as far as I'm concerned, you can eat the corn out of my shit. Probably shouldn't have said that. But I was kind of pissed because I've been dealing with this idiot lady for years. And she's had, oh, oh by the way, uh, early, years earlier, she filed a and I still have it. She filed a police report stating that Lloyd, or that Lewis Ewing, you ever heard of Lewis? Yeah. She stated that Lewis Ewing stalked her and followed her in the Safeway and a couple other places. And she had a truck description and she had a license plate number. And so the cops, they, they, they took it pretty seriously. They ran, you know, they checked it out, they investigated it, they ran the license plate number and it belonged to some Asian guy in Boulder who had a Volkswagen. Not a truck. So they said, well, this plate isn't on a truck. It's on a Volkswagen in Boulder. And she goes, well, he probably came here from Washington and then stole the truck and then stole the plate, put the plate on the truck, followed and stalked me, and then put the plate back without the guy knowing about it. And then went back to Washington. It happens all the time. And so the cops are going, wait a minute. You mean he flew here from Washington to steal a truck, steal a plate off a of Volkswagen in Boulder, stalk you, and then put
put the plate and the truck back without nobody noticing. She goes, yeah. <laughs> well, you think they'd have started figuring out that she ain't playing with a full deck at that point in time. But, you know, here they got a police report saying that Lewis Ewing stalked her and threatened her. And he hadn't been in the state of Washington. Last time he was in the state of Colorado was about seven years ago where he flew into the state, did a lecture at a, a hotel right by, not far from the airport. I think it was called the Airport Hotel. He did a, a lecture uh, to a small group of people like seven years ago and then flew out the next day. Never actually left the airport vicinity. And that was, what, seven years before she claimed that he was the town stalker. So they've got all these crazy reports where she's made reports that, you know, we did this, I did that, or I committed a crime somehow, or, you know, and they've never been able to even cite me for anything. Well, we did have a case where she called, actually, she has, she's really close with our next-door neighbors. So the next-door neighbors called, and they complained that we were littering in our own backyard because we had all these pots left over from our gardening you know we you know you buy pots with plants in them at the store and you transplant them into your garden well what do you do with the pots well you throw them in a stack in your backyard they're plastic maybe eventually you recycle them well she filed a complaint that we were littering in our own backyard this big fat code enforcement officer came and jumped on my two wooden gates jumped on top of two six-foot-tall wooden gates and took pictures of our backyard and cited us a $250 fine for littering in our own backyard, which was a violation of the international code, by the way. And I said, well, gee, I'd like to see a copy of this international code. Well, we adopted it by reference. You can, get, you can access it online. I said, great, show me where it was passed by any legislative body in this country, much less the state. I said, because here's the thing. You can't enforce any kind of code that isn't passed by a legislative body in this country or in this state. And it also has to be published, promulgated, and made available for public inspection with finding guides. That's the law. So show me where that was done. Oh, you could go online. I said, no, you don't seem to get it. Publication online isn't considered publication in law. That's virtual reality. So just because you put something online doesn't mean it's published. And here's another thing. The international code is copyrighted. You can't publish it without committing copyright infringement. So I know for a fact you didn't publish it. And if you can't publish it, you can't enforce it. And I said, here's another thing. If... Uh, I'm charging you with destruction of the code enforcement officer. I filed a criminal complaint against him for destruction of private property and um, criminal trespass. And I said, please, show up at court with your pictures because we're going to use them as evidence against you. Well, they lost those pictures. Because he realized, oh, shit, if I show up with pictures that are taken above you know, three or four feet above their six-foot gate in their backyard, which all four hinges on both my gates were broken because 
wooden gates aren't made to hold a 200 pound fat ass and uh, the cops you know I filed the complaints the cops said oh yeah we don't see anything wrong he didn't do anything wrong I'm like really he you got pictures that he took on top of my six foot fence which here's the thing since when can code enforcement jump on top of your fence to take pictures when according to the law they have to they can't leave you know they can't trespass on your property to try to find code violations they have to see it from the street right yeah so when I when I pointed out you better you know go ahead please show up with your pictures that you took from the top of my gate and I'll I'll have I'll throw your ass in, in county jail because that's going to be my evidence well they went inside the neighbor's house and took pictures over the fence through their window so they didn't have to produce the pictures that he took and then I pointed out well they, they wouldn't allow me in the hearing they, they had two cops stand over me and, and basically wouldn't allow me outside of the hallway and they uh, they had their little hearing for Dr. Glazer and found her guilty and fined her $250 for violating their international code for littering in our own backyard and uh they, because they wouldn't let me in the hearing room, I couldn't point out the fact that those pictures that were taken through their neighbor's window is against Wheat Ridge Municipal Code because Wheat Ridge Municipal Code says you can't take pictures over a six-foot privacy fence in somebody's yard without violating the municipal code. That's a violation of privacy. And so we had police officers taking pictures over a six-foot fence through a window in a neighbor's yard or in a neighbor's house, actually. And then they fined us $250 for violating the international code. So, yeah, Wheat Ridge has had a special, you know, a special place in their heart for me. So they got and, you uh, in violation of this uh, protection order for scratching your nose with your with the wrong finger? Right. And they said, well, what's funny is they charged me harassment and violation of the protection order. Well, the harassment statute says I have to make an obscene gesture. Do you know what an obscene gesture is, according to the statute? I've made many of them myself, but what does the statute say? The statute says it has, a, has to be a simulated sexual act. To be charged with harassment, you have to do a simulated sexual act. And... The prosecutor said, well, flipping the bird is a simulated sexual act. I'm like, what? What act would that be exactly? Because I'm really confused. I know all, I know a little bit about sex, and I don't know any sexual act that looks like somebody flipping the bird. Well, when you're talking to a public servant, you know, uh, it's like urinating in public is a sex offense in a lot of jurisdictions, yeah. and... So right. I surmise that flipping the bird and urination is a part of every sexual encounter by a public servant. Well, I said, dude, if you can look at your hand and see a simulated sexual act, you need help. <laughs> and it's help I can't provide you. I said, you need some help because I don't see it. He goes, well, the two bent fingers next to the middle finger are, 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 are legs. And the middle finger represents the penis. I said, in what world is that? 
I've never heard of that one, dude. And I said, here's the funny part. I've actually researched the flipping of the bird. I went and researched it. You know where it comes from? It comes from the Middle Ages. It comes from the English longbow. You ever heard of the English longbow? In England, yeah. in the Middle Ages, they invented the longbow. Now, the longbow was made of yew wood. Special tree that was extremely flexible and extremely strong. And they make these longbows out of yew wood. And it took a great amount of skill to shoot them. Because they were, you had to be you know, strong and you had to have real strong fingers. And shooting a longbow was called plucking the yew. That was the term for it. They said, oh, yeah, I'm going to pluck the yew. I mean, I'm going to go shoot the longbow. Well, the French decided they were going to invade England, and they declared that they were going to cut off the middle finger of every Englishman so they couldn't shoot the English longbow because the English longbow was kicking the shit out of the French because they had bows too, but their bows weren't an English longbow, and the English longbows were going a good 50 to 100 feet further than any French bow would. So the English could pelt you with arrows, and kill your guys long before your French arrows could get anywhere near them. And that was pissing them off. So they declared they were going to cut off the middle finger of every Englishman they encountered so they couldn't ever shoot the English longbow again. Well, the England, England kicked the shit out of the French because they had the English longbow. And they shot the hell out of them with their arrows before they could even get close. And so the the Englishman would stand on top of the the, the uh, ramparts of their castle walls, and they would show their middle finger to the French, and they would say, See, I can still pluck you. And that's where it comes from. Plucking the you. And eventually, it turned into, Fuck you. That's where it came from. Now, how is that a simulated sexual act? You'd have to ask the prosecutor. Yeah, well, that's all they got. I'm going to ask him on the stand, you know, at the trial. How does that constitute a simulated sexual act? And he could explain to the jury how showing your middle finger is a simulated sexual act. I'd love to hear that explanation. <laughs> and again, I'm going to make that remark. If you can look at your hand and see a simulated sexual act, dude, you definitely need some kind of mental health you need some mental health <laughs> assistance so tell me about the uh, the judge in this uh, protection order case oh well, originally the judge who issued it was uh, a judge who um, who the uh, the voters pamphlet several years put out on the voters pamphlet that this judge should not be retained because the victims of domestic violence feel more victimized by this judge than the people who actually victimized them. So they questioned people who went through that were victims of domestic violence that went through this lady's court. Her name was Judge Judy Archuleta. Judge Judy. That's what everybody called her. And uh, she's the one that issued a protection order based strictly on a threat to sue. And evidently, that wasn't the first one she'd issued. She issued many, many others based on lesser threats. 
and uh, they, re- they they suggested she not be retained because every day, every every victim of domestic violence that appeared in her court for her help felt more victimized by her than they did the people that actually victimized them. So they that was the first time I'd ever seen where the the uh, voters pamphlet stated that they should have retained that judge. And so she was voted out. She was not retained because of that. Eight years later, they got this new judge named Jean Woodford. She's been a judge, I think, for less than two years. She issues a warrant, or actually it was Thomas Vance, I think, issued a warrant for my arrest for violating the protection order because they had a picture of me scratching my nose with my middle finger. They said, oh, well, yeah. So the uh, cop issued an affidavit, which, here's the funny part, not one affidavit in the state of Colorado that I've found has a jurat on it. Now, I'm betting that the Aurora Theater shooting, the guy who committed the, the murders at the Aurora Theater, how much you want to bet his affidavit has a jurat on it? I'm thinking it probably does, considering they did a grand jury indictment against him. So he's probably got a jurat on his affidavit, but not one affidavit in the whole state of Washington has a jurat. It's Colorado. sworn in Colorado, excuse me. Has a jurat. It says sworn before me on this day. That's what it says. It doesn't say I swear under penalties of perjury under the laws of the state of Colorado and the foregoing is true and correct to the best of my knowledge and belief. Now when I brought this up to the judge, I said this isn't a valid jurat. The warrant was never valid because the jurat used to get the warrant was never valid. It doesn't have a jurat. The affidavit of probable cause isn't an affidavit because it doesn't have a jurat. She goes, oh, we don't need that here in this state. I said, excuse me, ma'am, but the Supreme Court case from 1986 known as Briscoe versus LaHue gives police officers immunity from perjury. They're immune. So they can't not sign an affidavit under penalties of perjury. Because if you have an affidavit that doesn't have a jurat sworn under penalties of perjury, it's not a valid affidavit. And because of, of the case Briscoe versus LaHue, they can't not sign under penalties of perjury because they're immune from perjury. They have immunity under Briscoe versus LaHue. So show me how they cannot sign under penalties of perjury because why? Oh, because they're afraid they might get charged with perjury? They can't. They're immune. So this this immunity granted to them under Briscoe versus LeHue makes it to where they cannot do an affidavit that doesn't have a jurat on it. She said, ah, uh, no, that's not the way it's done here. Denied. Denied. I filed seven pleadings, including a, a, a... See, and when they arrested me, they told me that I had a $200 cash-only self-bail bond on me. So in the state of Colorado, they can tell you. They can say that you only you can can bail yourself out for you know anywhere for up to ten thousand or more dollars, cash only, self bond. You know what that means? That means you can't come and bail me out. Nor can a bondsman. Only I can bail myself out with cash. Now, they have this 
thing called Article 2, Sections 19 and 20 of the Colorado State Constitution. And under those provisions in Colorado, it states that the state shall provide sufficient sureties, but may accept cash in lieu of bond, except for capital offenses. You know, and to that, clarify that... Hang on, Chris. Sure, yeah. That bail shall be available by sufficient sureties, which does not exclude bond, but they say that the only person that can bail somebody out is the person himself when he's sitting in jail. Correct. So I had $200 cash only self-bail. Only I could bail myself out with $200 cash for violating an 8-year-old protection order that according to their statutes is only good for 4 years. And they have to renew it, supposedly. But evidently... In Colorado, they think they can issue a civil protection order that's permanent without ever being, and I was never charged or convicted of anything. So what they did is they took my Second Amendment right by saying this guy has a, has a protection order against him, and they invoked the Brady Bill, which they can't do unless there's a conviction or some kind of threat of violence or bodily harm or property damage. And she admitted the only threat I ever made to her was a threat to litigate. And so they arrested, they came into my front door in March. They pushed the, the doctor who owns the house into the closet. And they took me into custody. Now, she has Parkinson's. So what they did was they cr committed criminal trespass and violated, and they assaulted an at-risk adult. Not just one, two. I'm also an at-risk adult. So they assaulted two at-risk adults. They then handcuffed me, stuck me in the back of the car, and then drove down the street about a half a block and parked there for an hour and a half and sat there with me handcuffed in the back seat of a hard plastic seat with my hands behind my back, which is... And I'm, I'm an in-home care hospice patient. I'm the only living case in medical history like me. My doctor says there's no medical reason I should be alive, but here I am. And I have two reasons to be dead. Not just the fact that I've got a cop that bifurcated my liver by kicking me in the liver, but I got a four centimeter, I got more than one, but I got, I got a, a four centimeter hole in between my hepatic and my portal vein, plus several other holes in, in my chest caused by when the cops picked me up in Snohomish County. They stuck a billy club up underneath my ribcage and picked me up off the ground numerous times until I passed out. I think about eight or nine times, but I'm not that old. And evidently, while I was unconscious, they kicked me in the head. Now, I don't remember this, but um, since this incident, I've been diagnosed with trauma-induced glaucoma which caused blindness in my right eye. And I've also been diagnosed with trauma-induced tinnitus. So I have inner ear damage caused by being kicked in the head. And I've got blindness in my eye because they kicked me evidently so hard that it knocked the pigment out of my eye. And, it, and the, the pigment 
clogged up the pores in my eye, causing uh, chronic open ankle glaucoma. Now, this was February 2nd, 2002, and uh, the police did this because you were the one of the first Washington State legal medical marijuana patients. Am I right? Correct. Yeah, I was in 19... Um, when I got in an accident in 93, I was uh, I suffered what was called cervical vertigo. And I, I crushed vertebrae and herniated discs in my neck and damaged uh, my atlas, my axis, and, and uh, had several... Uh, had uh, punctured lung, I had several broken ribs, um, and uh, messed really messed up both both my hands both my wrists and uh crushed my knee you had a lot of problems spent a lot of time in the hospital i had to learn how to walk all over again um and i spent some time in a wheelchair but um the uh, the accident um i probably shouldn't have lived through it it was one of them situations I was vomiting blood massively because of my internal injuries and uh, they didn't know what to do so after uh, I think it was three, four weeks they finally just said you know your insurance you don't have insurance so we're going to have to kick you loose so they left me out of the Portland hospital and then uh, some friends of mine came and got me on my motorcycle and drove me up to Seattle and then I spent one night at my house and then I ended up back in the hospital for about another month I think it was three weeks to a month and uh, yeah I was I was in pretty bad shape but I had to go through three years of vestibular therapy to learn to walk again and physical therapy occupational therapy um, and it was it was kind of brutal you know um, because I had lost my balance. I had to retrain how to balance myself based strictly on my vision. So when I closed my eyes, I would fall over. I'd, you know. <laughs> so <coughs> so if it was, I was in the dark, I was in really bad shape. But, um, yeah, they, uh, so my doctor after trying every anti-emetic known to man, which is anti-nausea medication, he realized that I couldn't stop throwing up. I was constantly throwing up. And, and he was like, you know, he was disbelie- he, he was in disbelief that I could throw up that much. And uh, so he wasn't too, he, he wasn't too sure about, you know, what the deal was. I'm a long-haired hippie. And he's like, yeah, maybe this guy's just a hippie on some kind of drugs or yeah, everybody wants anti-medic, you know, anti-nausea medication, right? So, uh, so one day I go to his office, and I'm waiting in the waiting room, and all of a sudden the fire alarm goes off, and everybody has to leave because there's uh, some kind of fire problem going on in the building. This is uh, up in Capitol Hill, so everybody goes out in the parking lot, including me. You know, of course, I'm sick, and I'm. So I go behind these bushes, and I'm puking my guts out behind these bushes. Well, the doctor, he comes out, and he sees me hiding behind these bushes, puking my guts out. And he realizes, this guy ain't just puking for my benefit. This guy's puking all the time. 
you know, because he knows I wasn't, he wasn't there to, to see me puking behind the bushes, and I wasn't in public in front of everybody. I was kind of hiding behind the bushes because, you know, you don't want to be, you know, puking in front of everybody. Doesn't go, you know, people don't like it. Doesn't go along well. So I'm kind of trying to be discreet behind these bushes, puking and shit. And uh, he realized, hey, man, you're really, really sick. And I'm like, thanks for pointing that out. So he decided, you know, I'm going to try. He tried every kind of ISI medic known to man, and nothing worked. Finally, he tried Marinol. Well, Marinol is synthetic THC in a sesame oil suspension in a little teeny pill that's kind of like a ping pong ball. And so you can't split it in half because, you know, try cutting a ping pong ball full of oil in half and splitting that. It's going to make a big mess. So, so I get on this Marinol, and he found out this is the only thing that stops you from throwing up, and it only works for a couple hours. Well, Marinol at that time was $1,800 for 90 pills, which was, he figured it took at least 120 pills for me to make it through a month. And he said, listen, I'm a, I'm a surgeon and a doctor, and I cannot, I, there's no way I could afford to pay for 90 pills a month and pay all my bills. He said, I couldn't, I couldn't afford $2,000 a month. He says, I don't see how you can either. He says, but you got to stay alive. We can't let you die just because you can't hold down any food. He says, if you don't stop throwing up, you're going to die. you got to be able to hold down fluids, you got to hold down food, otherwise you get dehydrated and you die. So he says, I'm going to write you a prescription for marijuana. I said, I don't think you can do that. He said, I'm one of the few doctors in this country that can write a prescription for a Schedule One drug. So he wrote me a prescription on a pad for medical marijuana, and that was in 94. My accident was 93. Well, in 97, I got charged with possession of marijuana in Shoreline, Washington. And I had my doctor write a letter and send it to the prosecutor. And I had a public defender that I had him give me at the time. And my public defender wrote a letter to me and to the judge and thanked him. And I went to my doctor, wrote a letter to the doctor, and thanked him, saying, thank you so much for taking the effort to write this letter in you know, behalf of your patient. And because of your letter, you've saved several, you know, numerous hours of court time and court costs. And, you know, we are able to establish that, that Mr. Riggin is legal to use marijuana in the state of Washington because of his medical need for it. And that since it's the only medication that works, it does more benefit than it does harm. You know, we're going to dismiss all the charges against him. And I still have that letter. I used to carry, I, I, laminate, I laminated it. I shrunk it down, laminated it, and carried it in my wallet with me. <laughs> because I had to pull it out lots of times. And uh, so... So in 97, I beat a medical marijuana charge at Shoreline, or a marijuana charge at Shoreline based on medical necessity. That was before there was any state law that allowed for medical marijuana. 
And that's when I decided, you know, I'm getting tired of being harassed for having pot when I have a legal right to have it in the state under the ultimate user statute for the state of Washington. If you go to the, you know, go to the RCWs and you do a word search for ultimate user, you'll find a statute that pre-exists any state medical marijuana law, and it's in every state. You can find it in every state statute. If you do a word search for ultimate user, every state has an ultimate user exemption, which says if you have a doctor's recommendation to use a controlled substance, like heroin, marijuana, or LSD, which are all Schedule One drugs, that you have a legal right to possess it. Well, they really didn't cotton to that. They didn't like that at all. And uh, I kept, I, you know, I would constantly have police officers driving by my house flipping me the bird in broad daylight. Now, I, you know, most people I know don't have police officers so mad that they drive by flipping them off. Now, I did file a few complaints against some officers, and I think I probably got a few officers filed and fired because they violated state law. And most cops aren't smart enough to know the law, so they they violate it all the time. But most, you know, since people aren't aware that that, that that's a law violation, and they don't they don't know that they can file a formal complaint against the cop, they don't. So most cops get away with criminal law. They get away with committing crimes daily. And uh, and most complaints against cops go unheard. They go, oh, it's an unfounded complaint. We're denied. Okay. And uh, like I say, in this state, there's cops that have shot and killed, you know, guys in bed. And they never got so much as a uh, a reprimand, you know. Oh, they got a six-month suspension with pay, or three-month suspension with pay, but nobody gets fired. Nobody gets prosecuted that wears a badge that commits a murder. As a matter of fact, recently, they just had a case where a Weld County Sheriff was living in a town called Erie, Colorado. He shot his wife point-blank in the head. And then, when the police arrived, when the Erie police arrived, they knew he was a, he was a Weld County Sheriff. And he admitted to them, I murdered her. I shot her in the head. The cops declared it a suicide and let him go. So now that would three, be a three. That would be, that would be a suicide by nagging. Yeah. Yeah. She shot herself in the head. He said. Yeah, no, I, I had to put her out of my misery because she just nags too much. Exactly. Well. When they questioned him, he had scratches all over his body. He had scratches all over him, his chest, his arms, everywhere. And the but and they they questioned him. They let him go. They said, "Oh, it's a suicide." Well, the parents of this of this lady, and by the way, she had two or three kids that he took and moved to Iowa right after this incident. So the parents of this lady, they've been trying to get justice for years. It's never happened. Well, finally, they get this guy from Channel 7, I think, News, or Fox 31 News. They got a, a news reporter 
interested in a story, and he starts questioning neighbors. Well, he questions the next-door neighbor, and the next-door neighbor said, the guy confessed in front of my window. I heard him tell the police officer that he shot her in the head, that he murdered his wife. He says, and I assumed that he, was, that he got prosecuted for it. I never, you know, he says, I never heard anything about it afterwards. I didn't know that they could, they, they, they declared it a suicide and let him go. He said, how could they do that when he confessed to the police officer that he shot her in the head? So the guy up and moved to Iowa and lived there for three years. And finally, this reporter got the case reopened because he had this neighbor that heard him confess, brought that forward, which caused a grand jury indictment, which caused, well, first it caused, a, a, they did a, um, they did an autopsy on her, and they found his DNA under her fingernails. And he said he'd scratch, he, he said that he was scratch, they scratched himself. He said, yeah, I was scratching myself. That's how he got these scratches. You know, you itch, you scratch. That's how you get the scratches. Well, they found her, his DNA under her fingernails. So it wasn't him scratching himself. It was her scratching him in defense before he shot her in the head. So then they got a grand jury indictment, and they, he is the first cop I think they've ever extradited. So now they've extradited him here to Colorado, and now they're trying him for murdering his wife. Now, that don't happen very often. Here's the guy. Now, here's what really gets me. The cop he confessed to doesn't remember anything about it. And he isn't being charged with accessory after the fact to murder. Wow. Now, where I come from, the asshole that gets him off for three years, for, you know, lets him get away with murder for three years, is an accessory after the fact. But they ain't done that yet. I don't think they ever will. So that proves to you a police officer can get away with murder in the state of Colorado. Murder. And his fellow police officer can get away with, with you know, accessory after the fact for covering up that murder. That's business as usual here in Colorado. So beware. When you come to Colorado, yeah, it's the Wild West. They play it a little fast and loose when it comes to law around here. Um, they'll, I'm they'll going, I'm going to... Go yeah. ahead, finish up. I said they'll arrest you and they'll jail you for not having insurance, but yet, you know, they're doing it on a law that's been repealed for 10 years or more. While they get away with murder. While they get away with murder. I'm going to recount 